My name is Dave. I'm one of the pastors here at the church, and I would love to meet you if we haven't gotten a chance to meet yet. We're going to spend some time looking at the scriptures together now. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open your Bibles to the book of Genesis. We're towards the end of Genesis. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, you can grab one of the black Bibles from under the chairs, and we should be around page 34 in those black Bibles. It's Genesis chapter 41. We're working our way through chapter 41. About halfway through, we'll start around verse 25. The series we're calling it the Joseph Stories as we focus in on Joseph at the end of Genesis. And the subtitle is God's Purposes in a Dysfunctional World. And so what we are trying to see is the reality that God is still at work, even in these situations where we are suffering, where we're confused, where we don't fully understand what's going on. And Joseph is a great example of that, someone who trusted God and was used by God in difficult circumstances. Now we're calling it today... The focus of this section, God reveals grace. God reveals grace. There's a great irony in a book and movie that came out about 15, I guess the book's about 20 years old. The movie came out about 15 years ago called The Da Vinci Code. Anyone ever heard of this, The Da Vinci Code? And the idea was there was this great mystery that the church was concealing the truth from the public. And the only way to find the truth was to bring in this world-class detective and this world-class code breaker. Fascinating story, so it's a mystery. Church is covering stuff up. The problem is, the great irony with that is that Christianity, one of the main things that made Christianity different from all other religions in the first century was that all these other religions were mystery religions that kept things secret. And Christianity was the religion in which the mystery was revealed. And so in Colossians, it says this, says this about Jesus, the mystery was hidden for ages and generations, but is now revealed to God's people. To them God chose to make known how great among the nations are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The idea of Jesus is that this stuff that's been secret forever this separation we have from God, this broken world we live in and we can't figure it out, it's just all laid out for everybody to see. It's no longer kept a secret. This mystery is revealed. We're getting a foreshadowing of that concept that that has its full fruition in Jesus. We're getting a foreshadowing of that in this story at the end of Genesis. That God is continually speaking to people. God is continually revealing Himself to the world. So that as Romans 1 says, men are without excuse because we've heard him and we've seen him and he's constantly calling out to us. So let's look at the story in Genesis 41. We're going to start in verse 25. I'm going to start by just reading a few verses uh, and then we'll kind of unpack the story bit by bit this morning. So starting in verse 25, Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years, and the seven empty ears blighted by the east one are also seven years of famine. It is, as I told Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he's about to do. That's where this section starts. God has revealed to you, Pharaoh. God has shown you, Pharaoh. God is reaching out. He's communicating. He's showing you. He's revealing himself to you. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for your word, and we do pray that we would receive it, that we would hear it, that we would see you at work in these stories. 
that are often very mysterious to us, but we, we know and we come in faith hoping that this is true, that you are the God that reveals himself to mankind, to humanity. You seek us. You call out to us. Help us to respond, Lord. Help us to listen. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So in this story, we see the idea that God is revealing his grace, even to pagan Pharaoh. And as we move through the text, I want to kind of focus on, on three ways that God is revealing himself here in the story. First, God reveals himself to rebels, to rebels, those who are opposed to God. And he starts that with revealing himself to Pharaoh, who set himself up as a God in a country who throughout the scripture, Egypt represents a country and a power of the flesh in opposition to God. So this idea of God revealing himself to Pharaoh is really pretty amazing. We take it for granted if you've read the Bible before, you're like, ah, I know the story, I've seen it before. But we have to pause and, and recognize God reveals his grace to rebels. And then the second thing I want us to see is that God reveals his grace through sufferers. Sufferers like Joseph, sufferers like you and me, ultimately a sufferer like Jesus Christ himself. So God reveals grace through sufferers. And then finally we're going to see that God reveals grace for spiritual growth, that there should be a response as God reveals grace. It should change us, you and I. We should grow through that process of recognizing and receiving God's revelation to us. So the first thing I want us to look at is this idea that God reveals grace to rebels. We see this again, big idea. Pharaoh's a rebel. He, he is doing life on his own. He represents the power of the flesh, the power of a humanity in rebellion against God. What's really interesting is that one of the symbols that all the pharaohs used was a serpent on their headdress, right? So they, they wore a serpent crown. And in Genesis, the serpent has very great significance, right? The serpent is the symbol of rebellion against God. The serpent is the symbol of Satan, of the opposer, of the accuser, of the one who said, I'm not going to listen to God, and told Adam and Eve, you shouldn't listen to God, you should do your own thing. And, and that's the very symbol of Pharaoh in Egypt, and so, again, a lot of symbolism here as we move through stories, but it's an overwhelming symbol in the Bible. Egypt is the power of mankind doing their own thing. And so we have to recognize that God reveals grace even to rebels like that, even to rebels like, like you and me. So again, in verse 25, to repeat, he said, Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he's about to do. God in his grace and in his kindness is showing Pharaoh what's about to happen. And we see this repeatedly throughout the scripture. Sometimes God revealing to people this tragedy is about to happen and, and it's a, just a, a gentle and kind warning of grace. Sometimes God is giving a warning of um, repentance based on a punishment that's coming. This doesn't seem to be a punishment. This just seems to be like, hey, you know, the world's broken. This thing's going to happen. Here's what you can do to survive this. Here's what you can do to thrive in these circumstances. So God has revealed to Pharaoh what he's about to do, Joseph says in verse 25. And then he repeats that conceptually with a slightly different word in verse 28. It's as I told Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he's about to do. So he's saying God is, God is warning you. God is showing you what is about to happen. So the story continues here. It says, There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt, but after them there will arise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land, and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will, be, uh, that will follow, for it will be very severe. This is kind of an awkward rendering in this English translation, uh, but it's an idiom, right? He's saying basically uh, the famine will be so great that the plenty will be forgotten, right? 
it'll be like you're so focused on how hard it is, you won't even remember that there was ever plenty. Uh, can you relate to that? Uh, you might be in the middle of that kind of suffering right now where you're like, this seems like this is all I've known. I don't even remember the good times anymore. And he's saying, that's how severe the famine is going to be. So seven years of plenty, everything's going to be awesome. And then seven years of just terror, nothingness. It's going to be so severe. Verse 32, and the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God and God will shortly bring it about. Saying this, this is going to happen. Verse 33, now therefore let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years. And let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities and let them keep it. That food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt so that the land may not perish through the famine. Now, I know a lot of you want me to comment on economics and what all this means. I'm not going to go there, okay? Um, he's just giving a logical plan of how we're going to deal with possibly the greatest famine this country's ever seen and the world has ever seen. Here's how we're going to do it. And he's got a plan. And God is revealing to him, hey, bad times are coming, and here's what you've got to do to survive the bad times. It's a, a gracious and kind warning. I think what we want to stop and recognize here is just the, the reality, the spiritual truth that God is a God who gives His grace on the just and the unjust. He sends His reins on the just and the unjust. It's a theme that comes up again and again in Scripture. God is constantly communicating to rebels like the king of Egypt, but also rebels like you and me, those who have turned from God. And He communicates His attributes and He communicates His kindness and He sends grace and reveals, reveals himself again and again. Psalm 19 says the heavens declare the glory of God. One of my favorite passages. Um, it's one of the few things we can enjoy when it's 120 degrees outside, right? You can still look up and see the stars or see a beautiful sunset. And you're like, man, God is, God is there. He's made all this beauty. Psalm 19:1, the heavens declare the glory of God. And then it says, and the sky proclaims his handiwork. That uh, word proclaim is the same Hebrew word in the Genesis text that we're reading that God reveals himself, right? The skies reveal God's handiwork, his beauty, his goodness. Acts 14, and actually a little error I made last week, I referenced Paul's preaching in Acts 17. I think I said 13. I actually meant this passage, 14. So we're coming back to it now. It's 14. God is preaching to people that live in the country, right? I said last week in Acts 17, he was preaching to the intellectuals and he was quoting their poets and quoting their books. And then in Acts 14, he's speaking to country people and he talks about God's provision through rain and harvest and produce. When we go to the grocery store, we should fall down on our faces. That might be extreme, I don't know. But spiritually speaking, we should just bow down and say, God, you provide. You are gracious. You are good. Your rain falls on the just and the unjust. You, you send your goodness out all over the world. So Acts 14, Paul says this. We bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to the living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that's in them. In past generations, he allowed all nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. So what Paul is, is kind of constructing here is he's going big picture, right? He's going, okay, history of the entire world. This Jesus thing might be new, but God has always been speaking to you. God has always been revealing his grace and his abundance to you. We have to recognize that even though we live in a, a broken world, 
we also live in a world that God has rigged for grace and abundance and fruitfulness. Isn't that amazing? Like, isn't it crazy that you can put a dead thing in the ground and it grows food for you? Isn't that, isn't that crazy? I mean, around here, it might just be jalapenos, but still, that's a type of food, right? And, and so there's just this abundance. I, I grabbed a picture here of a farmer's market, fruit, vegetables, good things to eat. Um, every time we look at a sunset, every time we eat a meal, right, we should be giving thanks that God reveals his grace to rebels. We're, we're not all that different from Pharaoh, right? The Pharaoh made it official. He, he wore a crown with a serpent on it. I don't see many of you wearing a crown with a serpent on it, but we've all given in to the lie of the serpent, right? We've all, like Adam and Eve, replayed that scene where we said, yeah, I don't know if I can trust him. I want to grab hold of the goods and get rid of the giver of those good gifts. We're all rebels. So Romans 3.23 says it like this, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All. Do you know what all in the Greek means? I learned this from my previous pastor. He was, he was actually the top in his class at Dallas Seminary. He would grade Greek. And he would always say, yeah, isn't that impressive? He would always say, all means all. <laughs> all means all. That means, in Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So, some of you in this room, you know you're a rebel, right? I started talking to rebels, and you're like, yeah, that's me. Mm -hmm. I've walked away from God. I've done my own thing, and I'm kind of proud of it, right? But it also includes the religious. That's the crazy thing. We, we often divide in these two categories, and Scripture just repeatedly says, you know, the rebels need God and the religious need God, but the religious are rebels also. Because what the religious do is we say, hey, I'm going to take a bunch of religious rules, but God, I don't need you because I'm so good at keeping religious rules. I don't even need your grace. And that makes us rebels also. And that's Paul's whole point in Romans 3.23. He's built this long case over the first three chapters of Romans that there are obvious rebels that are running away from God and they are without excuse. And then he turns his guns on us religious people and he says, you're the same way. You're the exact same way. You're just cloaking yourself in religious language and religious garb and pretending that you've got it all together. And so we just got to pause here and repent. Say, God, I can't save myself. You are the God that reveals your goodness and your grace to rebels like me. Do you, do you see that? Do you recognize that in the story? It's an amazing story. God reveals himself to rebels. The next section we see that God reveals grace through sufferers. Really struggled with how to characterize this section. Um, I wanted to just say God reveals grace through Joseph, right? I was afraid you'd, you'd be like, okay, yeah, him, not me. But, but God wants to work through you also. I wanted you to see that. And so God works through the suffering of Joseph. And God also works through the suffering in our lives. Celebrate Recovery has a little catchphrase they use. It says, God never wastes a hurt. And that's not just true in Celebrate Recovery, that's true in all of our lives. God works through these sufferers. God reveals grace through sufferers. Paul says it this way, I, I quoted at the beginning how the mystery is revealed in, in Christ. Right before that, Paul says this, Paul says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions so that I can bring this mystery to you, so that the mystery can be revealed. What he's saying is that the mystery of God's purposes and God's grace is being revealed, Paul says, through his sufferings. And Paul regularly invites the church into that as well. 
Again, it's not just for Joseph, superhero of, of Genesis 37 through 50. It's not just for Paul, super Christian and early apostle and founder of Christianity. This is for you and for me. This is our sufferings. In our sufferings, we fill up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. And just to be clear, there's nothing lacking in the power, beauty, and perfect sacrifice of Christ's afflictions. What Paul is saying here is it's lacking because not everybody sees it and believes it yet. So as we live our life, and as we suffer to stumble across the finish line and share God's grace with the next person in line, in our flesh, Christ's afflictions are, are being completed because it's being passed on to someone else. So that doesn't mean our afflictions, Paul's afflictions, are saving anyone, right? We're, we're sharing the saving grace that God is revealing through Christ with other people. So in our sufferings, we're, we're passing the baton. We're showing people who God is. Just like God was showing the world who he was through Joseph's sufferings. It's also coming through our sufferings as well. So let's look at the story part of this. So it's verses 37 through 49. I think Tolkien would call this a you catastrophe. I'm, I'm not that great at literature, but I believe what this means is it's a good catastrophe, right? So it's like this crazy earth-shattering event that goodness comes out of. And Tolkien says that's what makes for great literature and great stories that reminds us of how God works in the world. Like this crazy thing is happening, but God is doing this reversal and his grace is overflowing out of it. So here it's unfolding in the text in verses 37 through 49. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I've set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen. And he put a gold chain about his neck, and he made him ride in his second chariot, and they called out before him, Bow the knee! Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zaphonath Paneah. Zaphonath Paneah. He gave him marriage in marriage, Asenath, a daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On. So Joseph went out over the land of, of Egypt. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. During the seven Plentiful years the earth produced abundantly, and he gathered up all the food of these seven years which occurred in the land of Egypt and put the food in the cities. He put in every city the food from the fields around it. And Joseph stored up grain in great abundance like the sand of the sea, like the sand of the sea, until he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. That's a lot of grain, right? I paused for just a minute there when I was reading because I, I remembered uh, my notes got lost and I had to retype all of them. I don't have the meaning of Zaphonath Panea. I can't remember. It's something like God sees and he knows or God sees and he lives. We're not sure exactly what it is because it's ancient Egypt, you know? It's like how we can't read Old English. Well, it's hard now for people to read, you know, 4,000-year-old Egyptian, but it's something like that. It's like God sees, God knows, God lives. We're not sure exactly what uh, the point of that name is, but it's something to do with God revealing himself. It's the big idea here. And so he's renamed. But I want to point out something even more important than him being renamed and being given all this power. We see this literary reversal, right, of God 
switching from suffering to exaltation. Huge theme in the Bible, right? So twice in the Joseph stories, and more than that in lesser ways, but twice in big ways, Joseph's fine robes and clothing and dignity was stripped from him, and he was thrown down into a pit. Remember, we've talked about the repetition that comes again and again. We believe these are true stories, but they're well-written true stories. And so what that means is it's not just written like history. It's not just written like reportage. You know, it's not just like journalism but it's written in a narrative, artistic way. And so the narratives and the artistry highlight things for us. There's beauty and artistry in how these stories are told, and there's repetition that comes out. And so we see twice that Joseph was thrown down into a pit. One time it was quite a literal pit, the next time it was like a dungeon, right? But the text, again, being artistic, brings out the similarities for us and calls it a pit when it's the prison he's in so that we can have that kind of click in our brains and go, oh, okay, I see this is... There's repetition here, right? This is happening again and again. Joseph's dignity is ripped off of him, and he's cast down into a pit. And of course, this should remind us of who? It should remind us of Jesus. Philippians 2 has this beautiful hymn that says, this is what Jesus was like. He started out in exaltation, equality with God, one with the Father, and he didn't consider that something to be held on to, something to be greedily clung to, but he emptied himself. He gave that up and he came to earth. He came down. He humbled himself, we're told, to the point of being a servant, a slave, kind of like Joseph, suffering for us. And he died. But what happened? Did the Jesus story end there? No, and the Joseph story didn't end there either, right? There was exaltation. Jesus rose from the dead. He's the ultimate Savior. Joseph here is a junior Savior, so to speak, in the story. When you read the Bible, you can see this is kind of a theme throughout that basically every prophet, priest, and king should remind us of Jesus. They're all secondary saviors. They're all junior saviors. And we get to be types of junior saviors in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces. And so we see some of the aspects of Jesus being lived out in Joseph. And we should see the same thing in our lives as well. As we suffer, we should recognize there's an exaltation coming. Now, a different kind of church would tell you if you give enough money, that exaltation will come in the next few months, right? And I, I wish I could say that, but I can't because that's not in the Bible. But there is an exaltation that is coming. There is a redemption that is coming. It's really beautiful because here in the text, Pharaoh says, who else could we find that has the Spirit of God in him? You know what? The New Testament says that every one of you in this room that trusts in Jesus, like Joseph, has the Spirit of God in him. You also have the Spirit of God at work in your life. Ephesians 1 says, at the moment you believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit. The Spirit came to live within you. And that's a down payment, that's a deposit that should remind you of the inheritance that you have. This inheritance language is, is this idea that Jesus, the prince not only of Egypt, but of the whole universe, He's inherited everything. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord, but we're his little brothers and sisters and we get to share in that inheritance. And that's where we're headed. And that future hope that we're headed for, where not only will our tears be wiped away and where we will be comforted and where we won't know sin anymore, but we'll have this perfect face-to-face -face view of Jesus. Not only is all that coming, but there's also this inheritance, this, this prince, this ruling and reigning. And we don't really understand 
we don't fully understand what that means, right? Jesus talks about it in a lot of parables. There's this idea that we'll, we'll reign and rule. I don't know exactly what that means, but it's this exaltation we're headed for where we know this, the suffering we're living in now is not all there is. It's not how it's going to end. Our story has a happy ending, and that's where we're headed. And that enables us to keep going in the suffering now. And I want you to see that, again, the Joseph story connects to you and me. He's being exalted at a certain place in a certain time. I grabbed an old, like, random movie set picture here of a guy in Egyptian headdress. Joseph is fixed up in the best way they know how, right? In their ignorant pagan way in uh, Egypt thousands of years before Christ. He's exalted. He's honored. He's given great things. We're told in chapter 41, a few verses earlier, previous story, he was brought up out of the pit. Previous stories, he was thrown down in the pit. We're, we're told he's now clothed in fine linen. He's got gold put on him, signet ring, second chariot. People are bowing to him. All these incredible symbols of exaltation and power and authority. He's now being clothed, even though before he was stripped of his clothes and, and his dignity. So there's this great reversal. And we should recognize that just as God is, is revealing himself through the sufferings of Joseph, he can also reveal himself through your sufferings and my sufferings. So then Philippians, the great hymn that talks about Jesus being humbled and then being exalted, that hymn, that statement in Philippians chapter 2, one of the most famous little sections of Scripture, Paul prefaces that with, have the same mind as Jesus. That's the application here. Will you do that? Can, can we do that together? Can we have the same mindset as Jesus who says, I have a mission People need me. So I'm willing to move into this world of brokenness and pain and disease and disaster because God has called me here. And I'm going to humble myself. I'm going to go down in the pit so I can help others crawl up out of the pit. That's what he's called us to. It's really beautiful. It's a really beautiful calling. It doesn't feel beautiful when we're suffering, right? It doesn't feel beautiful when you're hurting. It doesn't feel beautiful when... There's so much physical pain or emotional pain that you're going through. But God can truly reveal his grace through our sufferings. God never wastes a hurt. God can work through you. As it says in Romans 8, Paul says, I don't even consider the present sufferings worth comparing to the glory that's going to be revealed. It doesn't even come close. And so hang on, but do more than hang on, right? If you're in the midst of the suffering, do more than hang on. Be like Joseph, who looks around and says, God, what do you, what's the work you have for me in the midst of, of this junk? Okay, I'm in this junk. What's the mission? Surely there's a mission you have for me, Lord. Who can I tell? Who can I encourage? Who can I comfort? Give me your spirit so I can look around and see where you want me to engage. And the spirit will do that. Pray that prayer. Say, Lord, move through your spirit. Show me who to engage, who to connect with, who to encourage, who to speak to. Because it's overwhelming, right? You can't just look out on everything. See, the, the great reversal in this passage is amazing, and it's big, and it's bright lights, right? Because this is the greatest empire of the world. We don't always get those kind of opportunities, right? Most of us, anyway, will not be prime minister of the greatest empire the world has ever known. You know, like, that's just, that's not normal, but we still get to have influence. And say, God, I see... I see all these needs everywhere, right, globally. Help me just focus. Like, what's the next person you need me to encourage? Who's the person that you've placed in my sphere of influence that I can speak words of, of grace? 
through my suffering and in their suffering as well. So that's Paul's great encouragement to the sufferers that follow Jesus, to look to Jesus, to see how he trusted in God's work through him and recognize God can work through us as well. We have the Spirit just as Joseph did. The last little verse of our section, verse 49, says, Joseph stored up grain in great abundance like the sand of the sea until he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. Again, literary echo, if you've just read the entire book of Genesis, maybe not all of you have, if you've just read the whole book, what would you think of when you hear sand of the sea? Well, you would think of the promise given to Abraham. Abraham was told that his descendants would be as the sand of the sea. There's a parallel fruitfulness, right? So God is saying, I'm going to work through you, Abraham, so that you have these descendants. Paul says in Galatians, he wasn't just talking about genetic you know, descendants, biological children. He, he was talking about children of faith. That's why our kids sometimes in Sunday school classes will sing that song, Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I, am one, I don't really know the whole song because I didn't grow up in church, right? So it's something like that, okay? Trust me. What Paul's saying in Galatians is that we're actually sons of Abraham by faith. And his descendants are as many as the sand of the seashore. And so this abundance of grain, which is much as the sand of the seashore, should remind us of that. God's promises of grace. God's promises of abundance here in the text. God reveals grace through sufferers so that one last little connection, and I apologize, there's just a million cross-references. There's like a hundred more I could give you. One more, Jesus says, how is a grain of wheat fruitful? A grain of wheat is fruitful by going into the ground and dying. And then there will be a great abundance of grain later after that. So the last section here is God reveals grace for spiritual growth. And this is probably the most applicational section for you and for me. Maybe even the hardest section. So now I'm praying for you through this because I know God has a habit of um, giving you just what you need and just what you don't want to hear sometimes, right? So... God reveals his grace for spiritual growth. Let's look at verses 50 through 52 real quickly. So in verse 50, it says, Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph, Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On. Um, she bore them to him. Now, those are hard, hard names and weird people, right? I just want to say real quickly, there are not a lot of strict laws about intermarriage at this point. Um, so this is one of those things that like, people are like, oh no, he married an Egyptian princess. And um, I'm an optimist, so I'm just going to believe that she came to faith because of, of his great faith, right? Uh, but we don't have the same strict rules against, you know, not intermarriage. I would also say those rules are often confusing to us at this point in history when we look back on them. And I think the best way to interpret those rules is God looking at the other tribes where they were worshiping Satan and burning their children in fires, saying, don't worship with those people don't marry those people that burn their babies and worship Satan, right? So that's how I interpret the Old Testament laws about intermarriage. I see them through this religious grid. And so again, there's no, um, there's no real racial or anti-interracial mixing thing in the Old Testament. It's really about religion and faith. That's really what later Old Testament laws will come up there about. Don't give in and partner with someone who hates God, right? Like, Partner your life with someone who loves God. That's really 
the main idea. So I'm going to be hopeful, trust that that's where she moved. It's hard to say at this point. We don't have a lot of information. But look at the way they name their children, okay? Verse 51, Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh. For he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. I believe that's a sign of Joseph's spiritual growth. He's now an Egyptian ruler, the greatest in all the land, but he hangs on to the language of his fathers and the way he names his children. He gives them a Hebrew name and he gives them a very specific meaning. God has made me forget all my hardship in all my father's house. Verse 52, parallel, the name of the second. He called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. So again, we're not sure, you know, there, there's this Egyptian priest and the Egyptian priest's daughters, the one he marries, but we see with clarity the spiritual growth that's taking place as Joseph names his children. He says, I'm going to use the language of my fathers to promote the God of my fathers and give really clear meaning to their names. Um, having children can be a very significant uh, rite of passage in our lives. Another famous piece of literature, The Lion King, just got redone. I don't know if y'all saw the new one. But in The Lion King, you know, it's this big deal, the circle of life and passing on the torch to the next generation. It can be uh, really significant. Um, having kids, though, is by no means spiritual growth itself, right? But it's a symbol of growth. Just as I said, Abraham's promise, you're going to have many children, many descendants. Paul says in Galatians, you're going to have many spiritual descendants. Isaiah promises in Isaiah 54, 55, and 56, those who can't have children will have children in the kingdom of God. Those who can't have children, I'm summarizing three chapters here, paraphrasing. Those who can't have children will spiritually have children in the kingdom of God. And so children are always a picture of something bigger that God is doing. And here, Joseph gives their, their names great significance. He's saying, Manasseh, because God has made me forget my hardship. And Ephraim, God has made me fruitful. So forgetting and being fruitful. I think those are two big parts of our spiritual growth. So question number one, is there something you need to forget? Now, just to clarify, we tend to hear forget in our our kind of knowledge-based universe, and we think forget means not knowing a fact anymore. That's not how it's used in the Bible, right? In the Bible, it's like, I'm clinging on to this, but I'm going to set it aside, right? So we would really use the word forgive. That's really the word we use in modern English for this. It's like, there's this horrible thing that happened to me. I was hurt in this way, and I'm holding on to it, and I'm not going to hold on to it until I've gotten revenge. And here, we see Joseph purposely saying, I've got to forget that. I've got to set that aside. Oh yeah, there's going to be parts of my head. I remember it, right? It's not like it's a fact that's not there anymore. It's a setting aside. That's what forgiveness is. Are you taking those steps to forgive? To forgive those who have wronged you? To forgive yourself when you've wronged others? Are you taking the spiritual act of faith to forgive? Forgive, as it says in Colossians, as Christ forgave you, as God in Christ forgave you. So that Jesus' parable says, if you've been forgiven by Christ, you will forgive others. If you're not forgiving, here's the hard news, if you're not forgiving others, it's a sign you're not truly clinging to the forgiveness that you have in Christ. 
So Paul says it this way with the word forget. He says, I forget what lies behind and I press on towards the goal of Christ Jesus. Paul says that is progress in the spiritual life. That's what spiritual growth looks like. It's going to be an ongoing process for us. You're going to be in an ongoing way. It's not just a one-time thing, right? Three people hurt me. I've forgiven them. Now I'm spiritually growing. You know, it's like people are going to keep hurting you, okay? This is going to keep happening and you have to keep putting those things aside, saying, God and Christ has forgiven me, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let go of that. I'm going to give that to God, better yet. I'm not going to just pretend it doesn't happen, but I'm going to offer it to Him. It's an ongoing process. It can be a painful process. I recommended before, and I'll recommend again, the book Redemption by Mike Wilkerson is a helpful book. I think, yeah, there's a couple more copies up here, um, but you can order that or get a digital version of it. Redemption by Mike Wilkerson is a really helpful book that I've really enjoyed. Our Celebrate Recovery program on Monday nights is, is a, a group of groups, a group of small groups that helps people work through that process in their life. But you need to take those next steps of spiritual growth. Just like Joseph, recognizing, man, God is at work, so I gotta forget this stuff. I gotta, I gotta forgive. I gotta set these things aside, which by no means is making them right. I read a quote from Redemption several weeks ago, calling it sin first, saying this was not justice and then giving it to God, right? So forgetting and forgiving is not just sweeping it under the rug and be like, whatever, doesn't matter. No, it matters. And it was wrong, and you need to then give that to him because you were forgiven in Christ. And then God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction, the second name, fruitfulness. That's what we're called to. Again, children is kind of the literal way this is explained in the Scriptures, and there's a, a kind of a basic biology function here. You know, we point to, yeah, that's what God made people for. We are to be fruitful but the scripture's always pointing it to something bigger and more important than that. So he's hardwired this world we live in so that when you throw dead things in the ground, they grow, right? When you bring two sinners together, often they have children, right? There, you know, there's this way that God's hardwired the world so that we are to be fruitful and the world is to be fruitful. But more than that, we are to be spiritually fruitful. So Paul says the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness gentleness, self-control. Did I get all of them? He's saying these are the, the fruits that should be born in our lives. Are those being, bearing fruit in your life? Are these things taking place? That's in Galatians 5, 22. Love, do you have a life of love? When people look at your life, do they say, oh, I see the fruit of love in that life. There must be spiritual growth taking place. The Spirit must be at work in that person's life. Joy, do people see joy in your life? Peace. Do people see peace in your life? Patience. Is patience seen in your life? Or my favorite translation, long-suffering. Kindness. Is there kindness in your life? Goodness. Faithfulness. Gentleness. Self-control. Is the Spirit marking your life with these attributes? If it is not, I encourage you to go to the book of Galatians, look at those attributes, Give that to God and say, God, will you make me fruitful? Because this is, these are not bearing fruit in my life. I need this and I need you. In the text I read about forgetting in Philippians and in the text about being fruitful in Galatians, both of those say that the way that this happens is by fixing ourselves on Jesus and not our own flesh. So there's this kind of paradox we live through where we, we kind of have to take steps, Right? And so I would say there's, there's a great health in just doing it, right? 
Like, I choose to forgive this person, but God help me. I don't know if I'm, I don't know if I'm really spiritually forgiving them. Will you help me? I need your supernatural work in my heart to do this. Help me be reminded again of what you've done for me in Christ and how you've forgiven me. And the same thing with fruit. Like, I'm just going to try to be patient, right? I'm going to try to be gentle. Just try it. It's okay to just try it, but try it repentantly, right? Like we step out and we just try to do these things. We try to obey, but we're doing it saying, God, I know this isn't really real without your spirit transforming me. I need you to make this real. I need you to make this work because I don't really know what I'm doing. So don't, don't just do it in your flesh, but just do it saying, God, help me. God, help me. I need your spirit to empower me and make this real. Take steps to spiritual growth. And, and what we say again and again around here is that two things that are important. Here as we gather and worship, uh, this is an important starting point to launch pad for saying, oh, Jesus is the place where this is going to come from. But then we talk about serving and joining, right? Serving, just getting out of yourself and serving other people, joining one of our teams to serve other people, serving in some way in the city. It's going to help you bear fruit spiritually. You're going to come to an end of yourself real quickly when you're serving others, and you're going to recognize how much you need Jesus to serve some more. And then joining a group, it's really helpful to do this in community, not just on your own in a closet with your Bible. It's important to have that time, but also with other people. James says, confess your sins one to another, pray for each other that you may be healed. Walk through that in community. And I need help. I'm, I'm trying to live out this patience, and I, I need help to live out patience in my life. Can you pray for me? And so we join a group to do that in community. All right, we need to wrap up here running us out of time god reveals grace that's the big picture and just where the story ends with these last few verses is probably the biggest picture that reminds us of jesus look at verse 53 it says in verse 53 the seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of egypt came to an end and the seven years of famine began to come as joseph had said there was famine in all lands but in all the land of egypt there was bread so in other words said there was famine all over the world but in, in Egypt, there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, go to Joseph, what he says to you, do. It's really, I mean, this is so many, there are so many echoes here of what we saw in the Gospel of John, right? Father says, go to my son. Whatever he says, do that. Run to him. Verse 56 says, So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain, because the famine was severe over all the earth. Great parallel of this is John 6. What I want to end with is the idea that the same God that revealed his grace through Joseph giving bread to all the world ultimately reveals himself in his son who came down from heaven and is the bread of life who offers himself to the whole world. And so these stories are amazing in themselves, right? This is a great story, but it points to an even better story. A story of a God who has ultimately and finally revealed his grace to us in his son. He says, come to me. I am the bread of life. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for giving us grace in these stories, for revealing your grace in our circumstances and in our suffering, our difficulties. We see you constantly revealing your, yourself in kindness to us in so many ways. But all this reminds us of Jesus, the last and final word. 
of your grace, of your revelation. The mysteries of life, the confusions, the darkness are, are solved in him. Thank you for giving yourself to us, for giving us bread, for giving us spiritual food. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.